We're just changing things up a little bit today because uh, we're going to uh, conclude our service with uh, our communion today. And so I'm going to continue on in the series that we're doing on Red Letter Jesus, meaning, of course, the, the words of Jesus, and at least some of your Bibles are highlighted in red so that you know that those are the very words of God. And today I, I'm going to sort of finish a passage that we're, I feel like I'm a little bit not stuck as in a bad way, but I need to give more uh, attention to. And it, it comes right near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and I think that it's really important that we really grasp, we really grasp what, uh, Jesus is saying, because it's so critical to our understanding of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so today I want us to talk about how good is good enough. How good is good enough to be on good terms with God. Now I'll just tell you about our um, awesome, our awesome daughter-in-law. She's, uh, she's artsy, so she's peculiar and different. Um, and she is full of life, and she's wonderful. We, we love Kat. But Kat brings a different perspective to the game of golf. Our sons like golf, so when we come to the island, they come to the island, we always go golfing, and Kat wanted to come golfing, and so that's cool. Kat had never golfed before, and uh, she, uh, she said, why not? You know, she's game, right? So, uh, you know, like she, she, had, she had no idea, not, none, as to what to do. And uh, she would hit that ball a thousand times before it got to the green. And the, funny, the funny thing is, like, she'd get on the green and she'd putt. And the thing that made her sort of so delightfully, delightfully refreshing on the golf course is that she would say, that's good enough pick up her ball and go. <laughs> That's good enough, right? That's not good enough in golf, right? You gotta get it in the hole. You gotta get it in the pin. But not not cat. I've hit enough balls. That's good enough. It's funny in our culture in which we live, I would guess even in our church. There are a lot of different ideas about how good is good enough. Especially as it relates to God's acceptance of us. Some would think in terms of comparison. Well, I'm better than so-and-so, and as long as I remain better than so-and-so, I'm good enough for God. Some think in terms of activities. In other words, if they do certain things, if they attend church or, or they help out the needy, um, they'll get sort of credit with God and, and that's good enough. It's good enough. Others think in, uh, in the, about the absence of certain activities. You know, if I refrain from certain vices, that's good enough. Still others think of how they should treat others. And as long as they're not bothering anybody, that's good enough. 
very surprised with the words of Jesus. A young man came to Jesus one day and said, uh, what do I have to do to be good enough? What's good enough? Let me read that from Mark's Gospel. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the bottom line, right? Good enough, good enough to warrant eternal life with, with God. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Thinking, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I don't even know if you know what you're thinking or asking. And uh, then he said these words. These are scandalous words in our culture. We don't say this to anybody. No one is good. Do you believe that? No one is good. Jesus said it. Only God is good, except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he said, all of these... I have kept since I was a boy. Certainly, I am good enough. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He found out that day that he was not good enough. To value wealth over what is pleasing to God is not good enough. Saul was sort of like this young guy. Saul we know as Paul after he had his conversion experience. I'm sure he was taken aback when he came to the realization that all of his efforts towards being good enough were for naught. He writes in Philippians 3, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I'll paraphrase. <laughs> if anybody thinks they're good enough, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. <laughs> he must have thought he was good enough, right? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. All of those efforts to be righteous, all of that faultless pursuit of excellence, Paul said is garbage. that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness that I've earned or on my own that comes from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Saul and the rich young ruler had learned the hard way that they were not good enough, that their exemplary efforts to be right with God, their righteous acts, were not good enough. As the Old Testament scripture says, those efforts are like filthy rags in God's eyes. Paul found out, as we read in Romans 3.26, that, that, that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law or by human effort. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And it's this fundamental truth that Jesus is communicating at the very beginning of this wonderful sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. As we've seen, he begins this line of thought by saying these words, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we've looked at how Jesus fulfilled the law. That he did it for the very reason that we can't possibly fulfill the law ourselves. Because in our sinful nature, we simply can't obey both the letter of the law, which that young man was faultless in regard to, and Paul. <coughs> we can't simply obey both the letter of the law as well as the spirit of the law. We're not good enough to pay the penalty for our own sins. Last week we, we saw that Jesus was bolstering his argument by saying these words. For, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can look at that passage and you can misconstrue it. You can misunderstand it. You can say, um, by this he's saying, well, if you just work harder, or weren't as hypocritical, or, you know, just were more disciplined, those Pharisees, you would be right with God. And that's not at all what he's saying. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees who were like Paul, would say they were faultless. But better than anybody has ever in the history of the world ever attained. Because you can't attain a righteousness based on your own efforts. So instead of talking about the Pharisees and, and how you know hypocritical they were at this point, he actually makes his point by looking at the law, and he brings up two commandments, don't murder and don't commit adultery, and he points to how impossible it is for us to perfectly fulfill the law. He writes in regard to murder, or he says in regard to murder, and we read, you've heard that, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, 
or you fool, is, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So yeah, maybe you haven't murdered somebody, but dollars to donuts, you hate somebody. And you can't help hate somebody. There's <laughs> another thing you say. And then in regard to adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it out. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. You see... We can never be good enough. We might be able to avoid an adulterous relationship, but we might really have trouble with lust. Bottom line is, Jesus is raising the bar so high, he's saying, you need to be perfect in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And the only way you can be perfect is in Christ. After all, we know that not anyone, no one is perfect, right? Oh, we are in church. There, there was that guy. There was that one. <coughs> Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. And why did he come? To fulfill the law for us. To be perfect for us. Because we possibly could not do it. It's impossible for us to do it. He was good enough to obey the law completely and to pay the penalty for our sins. And that's exactly why he came. And that's why Paul writes so clearly. Having said how incapable he is, it's Paul who wrote, you know, I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. What a wreck I am. And then at the end he gets to, who will deliver me from this mess that I am? This mess of imperfection. Oh, sure, I look good on the surface. People think I'm this, that, and the other, but they don't know what's going on inside my heart. Who will deliver me from that? And he says, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 to 22, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If we simply trust that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that it's his righteousness that covers us and makes us perfect in the eyes of God, then we will have a righteousness that will allow us to inherit the kingdom of God and spend eternity in that pure and holy place. 
The righteousness offered by Christ is not earned. And as I said earlier, it's so critical to our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount that you understand that all of the advice, all of the teaching, all of the instructions that are found in the Sermon on the Mount are not so that you will be made righteous. They're there so that you will become more like the one who makes you righteous, Jesus Christ. Their instructions on sanctification. So here's a thought. Because you have a righteousness based on Christ's fulfillment of the law for you, and you need not fear condemnation or hell, hear that. Do you believe it? Because you have a righteousness based on Christ's fulfillment of the law for you, and you need not fear condemnation or hell, don't be afraid to be vulnerable and authentic and address issues of the heart. We're so good at hiding. You know, we, we, we always talk about the masks that we wear to, 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 to appear one way, but we know that within we're another way. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable and authentic and address the issues of the heart so that you will grow in your sanctification, or you will be more like Christ. And Jesus goes on in these, this passage that we're referencing. And he's teaching on what we're to do, how we're to respond to sin. And he says, Therefore, if you offer your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. I mean, here you are, doing a righteous thing, giving gifts at the altar. <clears throat> Nobody knows that there's something between you and Joe. Nobody knows that. Oh, maybe a few do. Jesus is saying, you've been made right. You are perfect in God's eyes. Put down your offering. You don't have to appear any which way. Go deal with the issues in your heart. First go and be reconciled to them. You see, it is not Christ-like to tolerate or accept discord within the body of Christ. If you have caused an offense, you need to confess and ask for forgiveness. If your brother or sister has caused an offense against you, you take the initiative and forgive them. Even if they look you in the face and say, I didn't do anything wrong. You forgive them. Because that's what Christ is like. Because that's what Jesus said when he was on the cross. As they were nailing him to the cross, humiliating him, cursing him, laughing at him, he said, Father, forgive them. I'm sure some said, Ha! Like I need forgiveness. What a fool.
He goes on. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This isn't, this isn't kind of cheap, free, legal advice that Jesus is giving here. The scholars are, are, are all together on this. You have done something wrong. And it is not like Christ for you to seek vindication through the courts. Because if you've got a clever enough um, argument, you might be proven not guilty. But you're guilty. <coughs> so don't go to the courts to try to get some, some, some kind of declaration that you're not guilty when you're guilty. Deal with your heart. You're perfect. <laughs> In God's sight, you have been clothed in His righteousness. You do not have to fear dealing with the issues of the heart. And finally, in relation to lust, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It is not Christ-like to victimize another even if it's in your mind and they don't know about it. If you're struggling with lust, do something radical about it. Some of us need to get rid of our subscriptions. Some of us need to get out of relationships that are very questionable. Why isn't it good enough to simply treat people well? I mean, if I'm not bothering anybody, why can't I just indulge my inner thought life? <coughs> really? What's wrong with that? I'm not troubling anybody. Aren't sins of the heart sins that no one is aware of? Aren't they victimless crimes? Why would God care if we keep lust and hatred, covetousness to ourselves? Because God hates sin. <laughs> and hypocrisy, which is what you would be engaged in, you would not be indulging the flesh physically, but you'd be doing it in your mind. Hypocrisy is deceit. And deceit is a sin. If we need it to be pointed out clearly. <coughs> Sins of the heart are an offense to a holy and gracious God. They treat Jesus Christ and his sacrificial gift of atonement with contempt. If you need a reason to stop hating on someone or lusting on someone, let that be your reason. 
Christ died on the cross because of that, to free you from that. And so for you to indulge it is an affront to him. It is offensive to him. It brings into contempt what he did on the cross. It's like, ah, oh, keep doing it again. Put him back up on the cross again because I want to indulge myself. Do you see the wickedness of that? Sins of the heart violate the greatest command that we're given. It's obvious in the case of hate, isn't it? But what about lust? We're not extending love to the person that is the object of our lust. We're indulging ourselves. We're victimizing them. If you're married... You're violating your covenant of marriage. And you're diminishing the love that you have for your spouse by giving it to someone else. Of course, there's the old adage, your sins will find you out. Don't give Satan a foothold. But believe me, sins of the heart escalate and end up having obvious, apparent, clearly seen consequences. So that's why God tells us to deal severely with sin in our life. It is not so that you won't burn in hell because you have been made righteous. You are justified. It is for the reason that you want to become more like Jesus Christ. I'm going to just close with another thought, briefly. And it really comes as a warning, to be frank. If this is what Christ taught, it is conceivable to me that like the rich young ruler and Saul, there will be people who are surprised that what goes on in their head and their heart matters. And dare I say, there will be do-gooders who will be lining up with the rest of those who've rejected Christ on Judgment Day. Jesus said as much when he said these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away. Away from me, you evil doers. I believe that there will be a lot of people who frankly believe they're good enough, who will be in the line of goats, 
not sheep. Who will be looking at an eternity away from a loving and holy God. Who will be rubbing shoulders, even though they worked hard to be good enough. They'll be rubbing shoulders with people who didn't give a rip. And who, quite frankly, lived totally for themselves. And there will not be a distinction. There is only one righteousness that will count on the day of judgment. And that is the righteousness received as a gift from Christ that is not earned. And it is our job to try to become increasingly, day in and day out, more like our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you're very clear about this, that as much as we try to earn your favor, there's nothing that we can do to earn your favor. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given this wondrous gift that despite our ugliness, despite our sinfulness, despite the way we have treated others and we treat you, you are willing to accept us if we simply accept your gift of salvation. Save us from being hypocrites and trying to appear to be one thing and not the other, like the Pharisees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.